Welcome to the newest episode of the Needless Things Podcast, where we talk about toys, movies, music, and all manner of pop culture dorkery. I am your host, Dave, and I am still getting used to saying that after the big reveal at Dragon Con. Speaking of Dragon Con, today's episode is a panel that was recorded live at Dragon Con for the puppetry track. This panel features Mr. Tim Clark, a friend of the show, and he talks all about his career with uh, the Henson Company and his work on Dark Crystal, among other things puppetry-related that he has done. It's great. Tim is awesome. He's such a good talker. Uh, this was technically the first panel that I moderated, like first guest panel that I officially moderated in my new capacity as Dave West Panel Moderator. For needlessthingssite.com. And it was, it was great. I, I love doing stuff without the mask. It, it was really wonderful all weekend long. I just had the best time interacting with people in a different way than I had, uh, using my face more than I had. And I just felt more engaged than I ever have, not just with the the guests or the other people that were on the panel but with the audience as well i really felt like i was communicating better than i ever had before and and honestly i was more comfortable it it was just a wonderful wonderful weekend i made the right decision uh to not not drop the phantom troublemaker character but reduce how i'm using him and going forward it will just be for like hosting gigs like wrestling maybe rock shows and of course the game show but other than that it's going to be me and if you haven't seen my face yet you can go follow phantom troublemaker on instagram or you can go and send a friend request to l phantasmus with a ph on facebook i have not yet taken the leap of changing my name on facebook because it's quite frankly it just looks like a big pain in the butt uh, I, I'm sure I will at some point because, and that's another thing, is I feel, felt like I had a little more gravitas as Dave West because there's there's no mask, there's no goofy gimmick name. People listened a little better and I, I think took me, uh, not more seriously because it's not like I want to be taken seriously, but you know what I mean. Uh, it, it's uh, It's been great. It's been wonderful. And if you want to hear more about that weekend... Rather than doing my normal Dragon Con recaps on NeedlessThingsSite.com, I will be recording special episodes of the Needless Things Patron Cast on my Patreon site at SupportPhantom.com. Uh, I've already got the first episode, the first recap up, which talks about Thursday and Friday. And if you know anything about what went down at Dragon Con, you know there's a story behind Thursday night, and the only place you're gonna hear it is at supportphantom.com on the patron cast. And a new patron cast just went up last night, not about Dragon Con, but about Atlanta traffic. And it's pretty entertaining. I, I've, I think you guys are going to dig it, and I know the patrons are going to dig it. So go over there, check out supportphantom.com, see what you're comfortable donating. Five bucks or more a month gets you access to the exclusive patron cast, which is where I talk about any and everything. It's much less formatted than this show, not that this show is all that formatted in the first place. Okay, moving on. I am recording this Thursday night. It is September the 21st, and it is the birthday of one of my great, great heroes, and that is Mr. Stephen King, in my opinion, the greatest American author of all time. He is my favorite author. He inspires me. Uh, he has inspired me since I was a kid and very first uh, read my grandmother's copy of Night Shift. And ever since then, I have been a devoted Kingite 
King Head. I don't know. I don't think there's a name for us. Uh, the Cotet of 19, the Cotet of King. I don't know. But I, I, I love Stephen King. I think that nobody else creates characters and writes them as well as he does. His, his books to me are compelling every single time, even his lesser works, uh, that the character stuff he does is, is just absolutely tremendous. So happy birthday to Stephen King. You are one of my heroes and uh, a huge inspiration on my life, even though I never really followed up on writing, but certainly on my taste in, in horror and fiction and storytelling. And finally, before we get to our live panel from Dragon Con 2017 with Tim Clark, I want to tell you, if you have not seen Dark Crystal, which seems crazy, if you've not seen Fraggle Rock, which uh, Tim also worked on, he designed Uncle Traveling, designed and built Uncle Traveling Matt, if you need to catch up on Tim Clark's work, the best thing you can do is go to needlessthingsite.com, click on that big Amazon square in the top right of the front page and go find the Dark Crystal on DVD, Blu-ray, whatever you want. Buy it. Pick up the seasons of Fraggle Rock. And Needless Things will get a little kickback of every purchase you make. It doesn't cost you any extra, and it's one of the best ways that you can help out NeedlessThingsSite.com. And me, Dave West, sometimes Phantom Troublemaker. All right, you guys, it's time for me to sit down and talk to Tim Clark in front of a packed house for the puppetry track at Dragon Con 2017. We're going to talk about Dark Crystal and a few weeks from now, maybe a month, maybe a little longer, we'll see how things play out. I will have another panel with Tim about his toy lines, Boglins and Sectars. We covered a little bit of this on the first episode of the Needless Things podcast that he was on several years ago, but we get much more in-depth this time around, uh, which is why I'm so happy that we split Dark Crystal and the toy lines up into two different panels, uh, because Tim is, is wonderful. He's a great talker. He's engaging. He's got great stories, and you guys are going to dig this. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the puppetry track. <laughs> Some of you may know me, you may not know this face, uh, Phantom Troublemaker, uh, but you can call me Dave. I am the owner and operator of NeedlessThingsSite.com and the Needless Things Podcast, and I'm here because the gentleman to my left was good enough to be one of the earliest guests of the Needless Things Podcast. Now, how many of you guys have been uh, to the puppetry track this weekend already? It's pretty much it, right? This is it? Well, you're in for a treat because Tim Clark is here. <laughs> and we are going to talk to Tim about his work on The Dark Crystal, among other things. But uh, well, how are you doing tonight? I'm in awe. <laughs> I, thank you for coming. I'm totally shocked. At the amount of people in this room. <laughs> well, you, you, you've done quite a lot. I think everybody knows it, but your work on The Dark Crystal in particular, uh, I, th I think, is definitely an outstanding portion of your career. Uh, but before we get to that, do you want to talk a little bit? The only problem bit? is I did it way too young. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. There's still more to come. Uh do you want to talk a little bit about how you hooked up with the Henson Company? Um, well, in my senior year in at Pratt, which is an art college in Brooklyn, I had been trying every year to get into a class that was taught by Kermit Love. And Kermit Love is the guy who designed Big Bird and Snuffleupagus. And so in my last semester of my senior year, I finally got into the class, and I would just 
build puppets and bring them in each week. And at the end of the semester, he said to me, Tim, what are you doing after you graduate? And I said, well, I'm majoring in art education. I'm looking for a teaching job, but there are no teaching jobs. Because that time it was, I was at the tail end of the baby boom generation. And the generation coming up was the smallest birth population in the history of the United States. So they were closing schools. And I said, I, I can't find anything. And he said, well, would you, would you come and work for me? And I it was totally unexpected, and I did not have to think twice. I just said, yes, of course, you know. <laughs> so um, my first job working with Kermit was dyeing snufflupagus fur. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like everybody got the grunge job when you started, and it truly was a grunge job because Kermit gave me rubber gloves that went to here. Unfortunately, the dye pots were like this deep, and his, his studio was on Great Jones Street in the Bowery, and this is when the Bowery was not a nice place to be. And I was doing fine, you know, pushing the fur fabric into the dye pots and pulling it out and pushing it in, and then just one time I just went a little too far and the whole glove filled up with brown dye. <laughs> and for like a week and a half, I was walking around New York City with pale white skin and very brown arms. <laughs> and I would get on the subway and people would just like, <laughs> do this. Like, what disease does that poor man have? So, you know. That was my introduction. So that was your intro, doing the grunt work. How did you move up? How did you end up utilizing the, the skills that you have with Henson? Well, at, at each point, uh, Kermit was doing uh, mainly Sesame Street characters for overseas. So at each, uh, we did uh, Sesame Street characters for Mexico. We did Sesame Street characters for Germany. So, like, the Big Bird uh, Oscar role was developed for each country, but with different characters. So they would dub the main part of Sesame Street, but then have things that were done with native puppeteers to each language. And my first one was working on uh, Sesame Street characters for Kuwait, which was a parrot and, like, a big bear character. And I actually had to dye orange-brown for all over again. <laughs> but, yes. Um, so it, it's like at each uh, – and then we did t uh, puppets for TV commercials, and then we would do things – because Kermit came from uh, being a designer of ballet costumes. So we worked um, on – the parade costumes that Picasso had designed for Joffrey Ballet. So it was like, um, you know, like it was one month doing something like this. And then the next minute we were making a uh, 18 foot tall uh, marionette for New York City Ballet for the Ballet Don Quixote and where the, he, the windmill was supposed to turn into a giant, the, it was all um, flat pieces of plywood that were folded back and forth in a um, zigzag would spring up out of the floor and start swinging this huge mace, you know, trying to hit the, the Don Quixote. And I, it was the first time I've ever seen a ballet where the audience stopped and started applauding a set piece. <laughs> and I, I was sitting in the audience. I was just like, going, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> like, so it was learning back and forth, back and forth. And in between projects, I would make my own puppets, you know, just for me experimenting. And after working for a Kermit for a year, he, he hit a dry spell where we weren't getting any work. And I said, I don't know, I have to go make some money because I'm not paying rent. And I 
went to meet with Kermit at his class at Pratt, and I walked in the door as his class finished, and he said, Tim, I'm so glad you're here today. You know, Jim is starting up this new project, and I think you would be perfect for it, so I want you to go up and interview with him. And I was like, is he, like, reading my mind? I, like, I didn't even say a word. And so he said, you're meeting with Jim next Tuesday. And I said, okay. So I took all the puppets I had been building over from when I was at Pratt and over that year. And I didn't know what to put them in, you know, like, so I said, oh, well, I'll just put them in garbage bags. (laughs) So I stuffed them all in garbage bags and I went to this meeting with Jim on Tuesday and it was in the middle of the workshop with all the other puppet builders there. And I'm going, oh my God, like, I don't need this. You know, like I was like, I was so nervous. Did you feel very much like I'm not ready for this? Yes, very much so because I, I, um, I never thought in a million years that as a kid sitting at home watching Ed Sullivan and seeing the Muppets on Ed Sullivan show and think that I would wind up working at Muppets. Because at this point, Jim Henson was already, I mean, he was. Yeah, Muppet show was was, big. And Sesame Street, of course, was was big. So I was very intimidated, to say the least. And I was not. I was actually quite painfully shy back then. So um, I walked in and I started pulling out um, the different things I had made. And uh, you'll see some of them in the slides at the end. But um, I had really focused on not doing this. You know, I was making puppets that were not this. And I had done a crab that was this. So my fingers became the legs and I stuck eyeballs on my thumbs and he was walking across the the table. And then I did a fly that did this, you know? So I was using my hands and my body in a way that like most puppeteers don't think about and then I had done a dragon where his head was here and my head was the bump in his back and his tail was here and he was like eight feet long and I started pulling this out of the, the um, bag <laughs> and Jim was like just looking at me and he's like wow you know I said these are really amazing and I was like wait you're telling me my stuff is amazing you know, I was like Okay, this is going good, you know. <laughs> and then I, I finished, you know, showing him everything. And he said, okay, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow. <laughs> and he, he said, no, 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 Tim, I have to talk to HR. He said, you come back, you know, next week and and you can start. And I said, okay, fine, great. You know, like, good, let's go. So, and then when I got there, um, Brian hadn't come up. Brian was still in England. He had started sending draw- drawings of the dark crystal creatures. Um, he came, I think, maybe a few weeks later. And Wendy was there. And Sherry Amott, who worked with me on the mystics. Um, and a, a few other people. And a couple of people had decided they didn't want to work on the project much to my total amazement, like, you know, you talk about wacky artists, like, like, wait a minute, you have the chance to work for the Muppets and design and build puppets here and you're leaving? Like, I was going, are you out of your mind? Like, this is gold, you know? So, um, one of the things, that, and you'll see in the slides, that a puppet I had made was a sea anemone where I had taken really thin strips of foam and rolled it to make the fronds. And so it was very animated. And I um, uh, later adapted that concept into the full body puppets that you see rolling in the movie. And... Uh, 
Jim was really fascinated with the stuff that Moomenchance was doing and Palabolus, and he said, I want you guys to start thinking about like how you can use your entire body to create puppets, not just hand puppets, which then I realized, well, this is why I got the job, because I wasn't doing just this stuff. Now, for those that may not know, those names that you just mentioned. Uh, Moomenchance mm -hmm. was a... Uh, I think they're Italian Swiss company that was mime artists. Okay. And Palabolus was a dance troupe that was very progressive that started in Vermont where they do kind of almost geometric patterns with their bodies. So like they interlock themselves and do all this crazy stuff. If you've never seen it, you can see it, you know, online and they're amazing. Both of them were really incredible. And what were the, uh, you mentioned some of the artists not wanting to work on Dark Crystal. W did you have any kind of early impression of the movie? Because it was a departure at the time from what Henson was known for. Uh, w did people sort of have a feeling that, wow, this is going to be something a little bit bigger and a little more serious than what we've seen? Well, um, after seeing the Saturday Night Live show of The Land of Gorch, it was kind of a spin off of that more edgy, you know, like more dramatic, more fantasy, but there was a relationship between, you know, uh, the characters that in that first season of Saturday night live that Jim had developed. And we were kind of working off those as a base. And then with Brian's illustrations, it was just like, okay, this is the direction we're going in. Great. Let's go. So, and so when those uh, when Brian Froud's concept art started coming over, what you know when you're looking at these things, these two dimensional drawings, how do you plan out? Okay, we've got to bring this to life. We've got to bring this to life in three dimensions, and it has to be operate. I, I have to say, I always was more three dimensional than I was two dimensional. Like uh, I will start sculpting or building three-dimensionally without ever having a drawing. I don't, I don't necessarily think in 2D. Mm -hmm. I think in 3D. And I, don't, I didn't realize how weird that was until <laughs> later on. You know, um, I was working for a company, and the art director said to me, well, Tim, would you sketch out these puppets before you build them? And I said, no, I can't do that. And he said, what do you mean you can't do that? I said, I don't think that way. I just build. You know, it's like I think about the shape and the form of what the character is, and I build. And if you don't like it, I'll adjust the pattern and change it to make it something else, what you want. But I don't think, you know, it's like if I, even today, it's like if I sit down to dry, try and draw a puppet, I go, that doesn't look like a puppet. Right. You know, so um, so just looking at Brian's drawings, like it was really funny because when I started working sculpting on the Mystics, I said to Brian, okay, you gave me, you know, the left side of his face, but I need a head-on view. And it was funny because I was talking to Toby Froud, who's here, and they're working on the new ones. And he said, Tim, he still can't draw front view of the mystics. <laughs> so I, I, and then I said, okay, Brian, you know, like after a while, I just stopped. He said, Tim, just sculpt it out. You know, like you make it. And I said, okay, fine. So when I had that freedom, I did it. And then I said to him, okay, could you give me the drawing of what you want on the right side? And he said, do whatever you want. Like, you know what it is do it. I said, okay, fine. You know, so to have that kind of free reign was amazing. So I just went with it. And, um, we, the first mystic, his head was not sculpted by me. It was a solid block of foam that was carved like the Saturday night live characters and, um, covered with latex, liquid latex. And then, um, 
we kind of realized that there was no way we would be able to make the characters consistently look the same because we had a lot of duplicates. If something went wrong on set, you know, you had to have something to replace it right away. So we said we have to come up with a different way of approaching this. So um, that's when Dick Smith came in and was showing us how to work with foam latex, which was amazing. Just I, Dick was the nicest, most open and giving person. Like here was the genius of makeup art just coming in and telling us everything, like no trade secrets. And he said to us, he said, when I started in this business, no one to tell me how they did things. And he said, it drove me crazy. He said, so I had to figure it out all on my own and develop my own techniques and my, and I, anybody who's in the makeup business owes Dick everything because he was the first who broke that barrier of keeping his secret. So, you know, like Dark Crystal would not have been, the characters would not have been Dark Crystal without Dick. Now, uh, and actually, if you elaborate on Dick Smith a little bit, if you don't mind, because everybody may know the okay. name. Um, he did the makeup for Raging Bull. He did uh, Linda Blair's makeup in The Exorcist. He did... I, there's too many, but like he really was the modern uh, father of prosthetic makeup. One of the most prolific makeup artists yeah. to this day. Yeah, his resume is, and he he just died. I don't know two years ago. So he lived way into his 90s and was still making stuff, you know, and teaching and telling people how to refine their craft, which is amazing. So once you get into uh, creating the mystics, what is the process as far as, you know, you've got the designs uh, right, from Brian, but they have to be made into uh, a puppet. They have to be a practical thing. Oh, it's time. What do we <laughs> have? This is exciting. <laughs> so, um, this is a, this was the first promotional brochure that Henson put out. That was the cover art that that Brian did. So that was just to tease people about what the kind of character and the feel of the movie was going to be. That's the first drawing of the Skeksis castle. And you can see, like, the, the beginnings and the elements of it, but it was much smoother and clean, and then it became, you know, progressively more distorted and, you know, evil as the production went on. Okay, so this is um, my reference photos of, you know, the the first, you know, like one of the early castings of the foam latex. And I took it home um, back to my apartment in London. And then I went out in the backyard because I wanted to shoot it in natural light to see how the shadows on the wrinkles were going were gonna to work. I have a funny story to tell you about this. But So I'm sculpting wrinkles nonstop. And I get on the English underground, the subway system, and my wife is sitting next to me and there's little old women sitting across from me and I'm looking at their faces and I'm looking <laughs> at their hands and my wife just goes like this. You know, it's bad enough having a husband who stares at other women, but old women, <laughs> you know, I said, but her wrinkles are so beautiful. <laughs> she said, you are so weird. <laughs> but Everything you know, it's like, reference. I just... I just uh, fell in love with wrinkles. How could you not? <laughs> you know, it's like it's everything is everything is character in wrinkles. I still love looking at wrinkles, but so this is me then painting and you know darkening every one of the wrinkles. So I would just sit there with a brush 
on every head, uh, increasing the contrast of the, the wrinkles. And that's Dick Smith's hand. So Dick had been in an accident on a movie set. He jumped off the tailgate of a truck and caught his wedding ring on the back of the truck and it took his finger off. And I, I, when I saw his hand, I said, Dick, I, um, I said, would you mind if I took a photo of your hand? And he goes, why, Timmy? I said, well, you know, the mystics, they only have three fingers and a thumb. And he goes, yeah, sure. Go ahead. You know? <laughs> so, and then if you can go back the, um, so then, uh, Lee Donaldson had developed a mechanism to, uh, control the Skeksis's hand. And it was like a gun trigger because their fingers were so skinny, the puppeteer's uh, hand couldn't fit into the Skeksis hand. So it was like a trigger with a long stem, and then the tension was created by pulling lines. And I, I thought, no, you know, like the mystic's hands are big, and I want that, that ability for the puppeteers to express movement with their their real hand, you know, so it's not a disconnect. And so I started playing around with the idea of how could I create tension over the back of the knuckles, because this is the biggest pivot point. So the, the distance of your finger traveling from here to here is a lot of motion. And I said, well, if I run the lines up through the finger and over the my back knuckle, it will create enough tension to curve the fingers over. So they could actually pick things up. You know, they could use it as a an actual hand. And then um, that's a soccer shin guard. And um, this very fine, you know, supple leather. And then uh, Teflon tubing and... Uh, to make them spring back, I use rubber surgical tubing running through the wood to create the counter tension, and then the lines created the tension over the knuckles to make them curve. I've, I think one of the and most- that's playing back and forth. You know, it's not like I went, "Oh, this is going to work." You know, like <laughs> I, I, it was literally trying one thing. You know, seeing what worked, what didn't work, then trying something else, changing the shape, changing the pivot points, because I started with the pivot points in each knuckle at the center, which I thought made sense, and then lowering that pivot point to the lowest point in the joint, the wooden joint, to get more exaggeration of movement. That was actually going to be my next question, because one of the most important things about being any kind of creator or artist, I think, is knowing that you're going to have to do things over and over and yes. over again. You learn from well, your and mistakes. It, and I have to say, this was the brilliance of Jim Henson. I worked on Dark Crystal for two and a half years. And there were off and on, like we would stop and work on Great Muppet Caper or do stuff for Muppet Show. But he gave us the time to fail, which I always say was the most unusual thing about him because like every job after I've had after that, it's like, when are you going to get this done? When are you going to get this done? When are you going to get this done? You know, like, yeah. so the, the luxury of being able to do things and make mistakes and learn from that mistake and then, you know, go on from there was just amazing. Now, from what you observed working with him, was that something that Henson allowed on all of his projects, or was yes. that specifically yeah. wasn't specific to Dark Crystal? Yeah, no, it was. It, that was Jim, and um, although we we did we had a running joke in the workshop that Jim we had we called Jim the whim of iron. And some people say steel, but when I was there, it was the whim of iron, and. And so what does that mean? Well, I would be sculpting one of the mystics heads and Jim would come in once a week because to the workshop, because he was working on Muppet show at the same time. And he'd come over to you and he'd say, you know, Tim, what if you did 
this and this and this and this and like just played with it and changed this so like it was more the shape and blah 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 and distorted the nose more and I said okay fine so you know it's like it's Jim Henson you know it's like <laughs> you're like okay so I would re-sculpt the whole thing for the that whole week and sure enough he came in the next week he goes what the hell did you do <laughs> and I said but Jim you came in last week and you said what Tim what if you did this and what if you did this and he said yeah I didn't mean that you should do it I meant it you know just think about it and I like that and he walked away from me and I was going yeah right <laughs> and everybody experienced that like you know, like Lyle Conway, who was working on the Skeksis, he said the same thing to me. He said, you know, like, he said, what are you supposed to do? You're not supposed to do what Jim tells you? Like, who can do that? <laughs> so, so this is the, this is, was, I have to say, and you'll see pictures later, um, Foz Fazekas, who was the head of making all the mechanisms at the workshop in New York, came over. But when I was working in New York, Foz was, the most amazing person I have ever met. And a lot of people will tell you this because he always told us, if there's a simpler solution, take the simpler solution because it will give you the most. Like Foz developed this little bird character for Dark Crystal that his feet were locked on a branch. And then he had marionetted uh, knee joints and a, a brass rod that went up through the center of the, um, the figure. And then he had made this little uh, universal joint in its head so it could turn, you know, and it was all controlled by, you know, like little strings, uh, Dacron line, fishing line strings. So it, this bird would sit on this branch and just do this, you know, and be looking all over the place. And then he had made wings and he, and he, and I like watching him and he comes over with one of those computer things that, you know, the compressed air cans. And he would just shoot the air underneath the wings and the wings would go. Yeah. And the, the wings were made out of feathers and silk and whatever. And then he'd go, wow, watch. He said, Tim, this is so cool. Just, like, watch this. And it was, like, the simplest stupid thing, you know, like <laughs> a compressed air can. Like, you know, the, and then he said, like, if you just hit the can like this, the wing goes like that. And if you hit the can like this, you know, it's, like, really dramatic. And I go, God damn, Foz, you are so you know, of course, then he, Jim came in to see it, and Jim is just like going, "Oh my God, Foz, you just..." and and Foz was the father of taking radio control, like super complex radio control, um, and adapting it to puppet motion. But so, and when it came to making the expression of the of the mystics. The, I, the puppeteers were in an incredibly uncomfortable position because they're squatting on their heels and their arm was out like this. So their arm would just go dead. So I made a tube that ran from the mystic's head that was on a gimbal and would go, it was a rod that would slide in and out to the, his back harness so that it would take the weight off their hand. And then the mechanism had to be super light because that, it was torture. <laughs> like I felt bad for anybody who had to be in that costume. So the, the eye blink mechanism is all uh, soldered, silver soldered, uh, copper and steel. And then the, um, eyebrow mechanism is again just very simple surgical tubing rubber tubing with a cable pull because this surgical tubing is actually better than a spring because it gives you a more natural movement it's not a jerk it 
it's very, you know, because the, the tubing as it gets stretched increases its tension. Whereas a spring is the tension is there from the very beginning. So it gives you much more natural movement. So the eyebrow plates would slide up and down over the fiberglass to create the wrinkles, you know, and give him expression, you know, like of being startled or whatever. And then um, his eyes would look uh, left and right and they would blink. And then um, in his neck, we would just take latex, pieces of latex, and glue them together, and then we would take uh, ear syringes and plastic tubing and pump air into his throat to make it look like he's breathing. And un unfortunately, you don't see that as much in the movie, except for in the dying mystic uh, scene, you will see you know, his neck very slowly breathing, and his whole body in that scene is a big rubber bag. And we had a compressor on set just making his body go up and out and up and out. So um, basically that's what's happening with that guy. <laughs> that's his hand, which I still have. I kept the, that was the one thing I kept from from working on Dark Crystal was the skin of his hand and the mechanism because I didn't want to forget how I had strung it. I was so afraid that, like, years later I would be going, wait, how did I do that? Like, did I do it this way or did I do it that way? So it's the one thing I still have just because I didn't want to lose um, that connection. So there's, that's Early on, when after we left New York, that's the second um, Mystic Head, and um, that's the first foam latex Mystic Head, and that's Raleigh Crusen who's still working in the New York Muppet Workshop on her knees doing the second set of arms, and. Uh, David Barkley, who was working with me on the Mystics, is in the Mystic, and me with beard and long hair. And um, the shoulder joints were uh, plastic pieces with vacuum cleaner hose to make the flexible joint of his arms. And so everything had to be like super lightweight because they were carrying a lot of weight with the costuming. And that's Michael McCormick in the back, who is now teaching puppetry in Arizona, I believe. So, so that was early on. And then these are these are my reference photos, so I wouldn't repeat swirls and wrinkles. But so that each each of the Mystic heads would be not only the silhouette would be different, but that the swirls in their faces would be different. And that's the puppeteers all practicing that, that scene um, where their arms were marionetted. Every single mystic, their arms were marionetted up to the ceiling. So that scene where they are, you know, chanting in unison and undulating there were wires everywhere going up, and there were puppeteers on the top pulling their arms up in unison. Like, and I was like, to, to this day, I think, like, how the hell did we ever get away with that? Because that none of those wires popped, that we got it off, you know, and, you know, it's like we didn't have to reshoot and reshoot. It's, it's a minor miracle. There's a there's the dying mystic. That's they, I unfortunately this is out of whack, but um, that gives you an idea. Like um, when I first started working at Kermit uh, Studio, the the big revolution that Kermit made in building puppets was uh, taking 
boning and putting it inside netting and creating a spiral. So like Big Bird's body from the top of his neck to the bottom where his feet come in is one continuous spiral boning behind netting. So it's he, he has this volume, but no weight. And that's the beauty of that. And it comes from Kermit's uh, experience doing ballet costumes. Because how do you do... And, and it's really derived from women's hoop skirts from centuries ago of creating those big bustles, you know, with boning. Now, they didn't do it. They would do it in sections. But it was one continuous spiral that would act like a spring in a way and give it natural movement and body. So the, the mystic's tail was done that way and his neck. So it was lightweight but um, flexible. That's just a, a shot on set. That's the first mystic with the carved foam. That, and that was shot in uh, Jim's backyard in Bedford, New York, on a weekend. And that's This is after, um, like, halfway through the movie, when the Mystics... The Mystics were some of the earliest shots uh, done in the movie. And then Brian said, Tim, I'm going to need reference of all the Mystics, so you need to bring them onto the studio, and I'm going to shoot photographs of them for the book after the movie. So we just spent, like, I don't know, a few days doing detail. And that he, uh, Brian shot all these photographs for his own reference. That one also. And that guy is that guy's in the museum in... No, 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 this is the one that is the version of the toy that just came out by Reaction. It's that mystic. And that's the original mystic that I sculpted for Hasbro Toys when the movie came out. But they, the, the toys were never released because Hasbro saw the movie and they said, there's no kid who's going to watch this movie. It's terrifying. <laughs> and, of course, they never conceived the idea that adults would buy action figures. <laughs> Can you imagine? What a ridiculous idea. So, Can you elaborate a little bit more on the toy line and about working well, on the sculpts for those? Yeah, so so um, Jim Mahon, who was one of the art directors at Muppets, said, you know, Tim, you know these characters better than anybody, so I want you to sculpt the toys. And this was my first toy sculpting job. And so I did the Mystics, and unfortunately, like Hasbro said, everything has to come out of a two-part mold, which really limits the detail that you can put into it. So I would I would sculpt them. Then I went up to Hasbro for like six weeks, and I had to alter them to make to their specifications. And then they produced the molds, which was very expensive. They cut all this in steel. They came out with the first series, and then at Toy Fair, they canceled the whole line because they saw the movie, and they, they that was their reaction. They said, no kid is going to wow. sit through this. So they never wished. And that's Boz, my mentor and genius. And that's him working on Doozers. And this is Jim with the slaves. I sculpted a lot of the slaves. And um, I was supposed to be sculpting pod people. And I would finish the sculpt, and I would take it to Brian, and he'd go, Tim, they're supposed to be happy potato people. <laughs> he said, all of yours look so depressed. Like, what's wrong? I said, uh, how do you make a happy potato? And he said, look. And then he would do like, you know, like Brian was always sketching. So he's just like, that's a happy potato. And, I, and then I would go back, and I would sculpt another one. And he goes, Tim, what's wrong with you? And I said, why? What's like? That's a happy potato. <laughs> and, and he'd say, "No, that's a slave." He said, "All of yours are going to be slaves." <laughs> okay, fine. I'm happy with it. <laughs> you know? Now this is this is the um, sea anemone puppet I made 
when I was working at Kermit Shop that I showed Jim, and then how we adapted that concept of rolling the foam into a point to make these spikes for the movie for those creatures. And I don't even know what they call them in the movie, but um, and then we basically took a black full body suit and glued each tube to it. And then the puppeteers would just get in it and roll around on set. <laughs> and it, it created the most bizarre movement and people couldn't figure out like, how the hell did they do that? You know, it's like, and it was such a simple thing. So more slaves. <laughs> More of Tim's depressed slaves. <laughs> so the other thing that I did on um, on Dark Crystal was uh, I worked on the mechanisms for the Landstrider's head. And the, the one thing that I did was they were trying to figure out how to make that stinger come out of his head. So Jim said to me, Tim, can you come up with a, a way of making that stinger like shoot out of his head? Like shoot. I know, okay, fine. So I'm like working with pieces of tubing and I'm having it one slide inside the other and blah, 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 blah. I, I couldn't get it to look right. It, like it just looked mechanical and stupid. And so after a couple of weeks, he said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I keep trying this, but you know, I can't get something that's smooth enough that you don't see the lines in it from the tube, you know, compressing and contracting. And I said, it just doesn't look real. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, why don't we do like a close-up head? I'll just sculpt a piece of nylon rod and bend it and heat it and then paint it to match the coloring of the Landstrider. And I'll just put a handle on the back of it and we'll just shoot it, like push it out of his head. He said, you think that's going to work? And I'm like, you know, like, that's like the worst thing is like you have Jim Henson. You think that's going to work? You know, like, and I was like, okay. I, I said, Jim, I can't figure out another way to do it. And Foz always tells me, go with the simplest thing. And he said, all right, fine, we'll try it. You know, and of course, that's what we ended up doing was just literally having a close-up head and then just taking our hand and shoving this long shaft out and then cutting and shooting, uh, you know, the land striders in battle with the Gartham with the stinger. And then the special effects were added in later on of the you know, the acid coming out of the stinger that was done post-production. But that was a, like just an amazing, uh, set to be on, but that was all in the back lot at Elstree. And we had two weeks of solid sunshine in England, which was unheard of. <laughs> and I, that was, it seemed like great to me, you know, like, Two weeks of solid sunshine in England is like, you know, you're just like, oh. And the English love to complain about the weather. Like, oh, my God, another rainy day, another gray day. And we got into having two weeks of solid sunshine. And within the first week, they were all going, oh, no, no, we're going to have another drought. I said, you know, you guys are never happy. I said, we finally have sunshine. We actually get out to go at lunchtime and go out and lie in the sun. Just be happy. You know, it's like, it's okay. We'll be okay. But it was it was phenomenal to see them build that set on the back lot. And they spray painted the whole earth. Uh, it was incredible. And that's a Gartham. And that was just one of the reference photos. Fred Knight uh, designed and built all the Gartham. And Fred came from um, theater in New York. And he was an armor builder. He built armor for a lot of Broadway productions, and he had developed this technique of making lightweight armor out of fiberglass, and that was his specialty. And Sherry Amon had worked with him on some theatrical production, so she brought him in just to make the Gartham. And he did, um, you know, it's like just being around all these people, you were like, I was like, I was this young, I was like 22, 23, and I was like in awe because I was working with the best of the best at every step. You know, it's like to go in and watch him make those things was like such an incredible education. 
I don't know how you got within 10 feet of one of those things. They're terrifying. <laughs> Such nightmare fuel. Yeah, but you look at all those passive people where are the people who are in them. So, <laughs> so that's the, that's the, that's the, the set that was on the back lot of the entrance to the castle where the Landstriders fought. And Jim said, okay, everybody is going to go on set. And we're like, we're, like he got the whole company on set. And we're like, why are we going on? I'm going on there. And he's, he said, we're going to do a group shot of everybody that's worked on this movie. So then the photographer was way up on the scaffolding, and he took that shot. Yes? That's plaster. This is really old school uh, theater that is all sculpted plaster work. And they, at one time, they were making stuff out of urethane foam, but the English... Uh, you know, what would be the EPA here came in and they were watching the guys stand on these big molds to make castings in urethane foam. And one guy told me his hair was starting to turn green. And the EPA came in and said, you cannot work with this material. You are going to die. <laughs> so they had to go back to the old school of literally sculpting everything in plaster. And those guys were amazing. Like the big uh, castle interior, that's all hand-sculpted plaster. And that was three stories high. Now, the stories were not full, like, U.S. stories. They were distorted to make it look bigger than it is. But the, that set was immense. And, you know, like an Agra's set with the – that was to scale. That – I just going in there and watching that thing move, like it's like holy mackerel! I did spending a lot of money because <laughs> they were all hand spun copper, you know, big copper rounds that were you know soldered or welded together. I mean, it's just amazing, amazing stuff. That was also where when I learned that they how they cheat in Star Wars. <laughs> Because oh, I, you know, it's like you got to share that. Star Wars was being shot at the same time, and Yoda was being shot at the same time. And so one day, I'm walking past the studio where they're building the spaceships for Star Wars, and I'm going, "What are they doing?" And they were in there taking Ravel models and breaking them up, the plastic model kits that kids play with, and then gluing it back together on these shapes. And I walked in, I said. That's how you guys do this? Because I had this in my head that they were machining everything and making it one part at a time and, you know, assembling these incredible. I hear they were busting up old B-52s and making, you know, the spaceship for Star Wars. I go, you guys are such cheaters. <laughs> I walked down there. I was so disappointed. I was like. So the working on the Dark Crystal, you had to meet, as you said, a huge number of talented people that were good at different things. And looking at the movie, there's such a diverse collection of creatures, characters, and mm -hmm. uh, environments, but they all feel the same. They all have, they all feel like they're part of the same world. Who who was kind of the overseer of like were there alterations that well, you had to make? Who do this you is think? too far. Well, but as far as like oh this no, is too that, far out there. Brian Froud. Brian Froud could turn out more drawings in a single day than I could do in a month. I, I'm not kidding. He was there was just such an amazing flow of watching him draw. And I was always in awe. I was like, how does he do this? I like, like, it just would come out of him like nothing. And it wasn't just that he was doing uh, the same thing over and over again. He would go from doing the woodland creatures to the Skeksis to doing the mystics. And it was just like this continuous flow. The guy is a genius. And the only way, I mean, yes, you can... You can look at his work, but to see him actually do it in front of you, I was like, oh, God, I will never be able to do that. I mean, like, I can draw, but I can never have that flow, you know? 
it's one of those things where the process almost seems to be just sort of coming from maybe not even within him, like that that higher force yeah. flowing through. Yeah. And, and, you know, like he would talk about his influences of like, you know, when we were in the New York shop, there was a seafood restaurant right below us. And Fran was going down every day and ordering lobster. <laughs> he was like, why is he ordering lobster? Like, that's not cheap, you know. And it was the Gartham, you know, it's like that was he, you know, he said, I he said, I needed all those lobster parts, you know, so I could <laughs> draw the Gartham. So. So as somebody who worked on this fantastic film to a room full of people who have grown up with this movie, do you have any final thoughts, anything you want to express about the experience of being part of this? I have to say the only thing I it always tugs on my heart is that Jim didn't get to see this because he was so disappointed when the movie didn't do well in the box office. And it was such an important film to him that he didn't get to see how much people love this movie now. It's just like heart wrenching, you know, because he put so much into this movie, you know, it just, you know, it was such a huge labor of love and, even fund, fund, funding it and financing it, he went to Lou Grade and he said, I want to do this fantasy science fiction movie. And Lou Grade said, Jim, you can do that after you make me another Muppet movie so I make more money. <laughs> so that's why Dark Crystal got halted in a way because we had to do Great Muppet Caper to fund continuing work on Dark Crystal. So when it didn't do well at the box office, he was very disheartened. And I know after he did Labyrinth, which wasn't that successful in the box office either, he was really disappointed because he thought he was correcting the mistakes that a lot of people told him on Dark Crystal that the lead should have been humans and right. not puppets. So that was, you know, but, you know, it's like it's all hindsight because you can look back at it now and go, no, it wouldn't have worked. But he was being pressured from a lot of different groups. So, you know, and going through the exhibit at the center for puppetry arts, I, you know, it's like very emotional for me because I'm like, gosh, Jim, you know, it's like, would you believe that your stuff is in a museum? You know? And then somebody asked me, well, how do you feel about that? I said, Oh, I thought I would be dead before that happened. You know, I really <laughs> think I would still be here. So, well, the movie uh, has had a lasting impact, and now we've got we've got comic books, we've got a new show coming, yeah. we've got novelizations, we've got the the universe that you helped to create is expanding, and I think yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. I, yeah, and I hope it I hope it goes. I hope it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a Thank big you. round of applause. So that recording was made on my phone rather than my voice recorder, which is why it sounds a little robot-y. I had to play around with it a good bit in Audacity to get it to sound as good as it sounds, which it's not bad. It's not bad. Uh, but if you would like to hear the story of why this was recorded with my phone and not with my voice recorder, then head on over to supportphantom.com and join up so you can hear all of the exclusive patron casts detailing not only my weekend at Dragon Con, but also other various adventures of Dave West, a.k.a. Phantom Troublemaker. I think you'll enjoy uh, a little different way of doing things over there. It's raw and it's loose, and I get good feedback about the stuff that I post. I, I did one episode that's just me complaining about my day job, or, or as as it was referred to in a recent interview I did, my A job. That'll be coming up soon uh, on, uh, well, we'll I'll, I'll let you know when it happens, because once once it's up, I'll feel good about promoting it. Until then, we'll, we'll see. But uh, yeah, somebody interviewed me. For, for a thing, as a, I don't, I don't know that I want to say as an Atlanta celebrity, but I think that's pretty much what it was. So that's pretty cool. I, uh, 
I'd like to do more of that kind of thing. Well, I'd like to get into my story. I'd like to share my story with the world. Uh, so, yeah, supportphantom.com. Go check that out for exclusive content. That's going to be going for a little while longer, at least, I guess. And uh, thanks for stopping by, you guys. Check out the Needless Things Podcast Facebook group. Let us know what you think. Shoot me an email at phantomtroublemaker at gmail.com. And I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Needless Things Podcast. You're the best. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Downcast, or in the ears of a Trader Vicks employee. And of course, it's at needlessthingssite.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh.